I hope you're ready for another podcasting session, Clay, because many times that's what creating internet content is. It's one vile fucking podcast after another. How are you? Well, Wes, I have, in fact, hoped for this exact situation ever since you gave me that Indian head to hide. So, <laughs> I would hope you don't think our relationship is the Al and Johnny Burns uh, relationship <laughs> where, where I'm sipping a coffee and you're just telling me some nonsense about something. My favorite part of that is Al's sarcastic joke about not to tell Dan Doherty what they just talked about yes. as he comes in loudly <laughs> announcing it. And then he's, he's, Dan asks him what's going on and he's too, he's too embarrassed or he's, uh, he realizes he shouldn't say anything because Al told him not to and he didn't get the joke. Yeah, this this might be the funniest episode so far. Oh, really? That would be a funny contrast, just because it's kind of it's also the one of the saddest episodes I think so far. Sure. So. Yeah, I, I just thought generally it, it seemed like they were playing a lot of the scenes uh, for the absurdism and humor. Yeah. Um, yeah. The frock, were, the frock coat thing, the the running gag, yeah, his jacket. Yeah, and like all the stuff with EB wanting to be the mayor and stuff. It's it's all very funny, which does it is. <laughs> A counterpoint to some pretty sad stuff, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, the frock coat's a good example of that, right? It's like yeah. it, it has a lot of jokes, but it's also uh, one of the more cutting insults in it, I think, when Jane is talking to Charlie uh, when she has her head against the wall. Um, yeah, and also, uh, you, you it also is a, a very guiding, important principle to um, to make sure that no matter who you are, Never look like E.B. Farnham when you're getting a hand job would be a good recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you're the mayor somewhere else. I mean, is behind the piano the best place to do that? <laughs> uh, so I guess what we uh, one thing before we get into it would just be kind of interesting. So it's been a uh, – I wanted to touch base about uh, – before we started recording, we were talking about how we missed a week last week of recording this show, and it feels like sometimes it just feels like time flies uh, and you forget about what you've seen and like where you stand in the show and everything. Uh, what do you think about the pace we're watching Deadwood at? Uh, like we're, we're doing basically one episode a week. In, mm-hmm. an, in an ideal world, is that too slow or is that just right? Like we're, we're obviously going to be consuming it faster than it came out on TV, but we're still watching it at the pace that it would have aired on TV. Is that... Mm. Is that like a? Are you finding that to be a positive experience, or do you think that you would deal better with watching it slower or faster? Do you have any thoughts? No, I I, I like I like the speed that we're doing it. Um, not not only because that is the speed at which it was being put out, but also this show can be so dense that I think watching too many of them back to back, things would start to run together a little bit. Yep. Um, and that's not to say that the stuff they're doing is bad or anything, but it's just like the, the way they, the, the dialogue can be so dense that I, I feel like it's, it's better to have a little bit more time to digest what's going on. Yeah. Amy watched Amy. Amy's like, you guys are watching this too slowly. So she's like taken off ahead of me. <laughs> and she is, she was watching. She uh, should, she should uh, talk to Kyle. <laughs> I feel like Kyle's been doing the same thing. <laughs> I know. Well, he's got like uh reams and reams of Voyager notes or whatever, but the, um, yeah, so she was watching an episode ahead, and I was, and as I was watching this episode, I was already, I was just thinking in my head, I was like, oh no, I hope I don't bring up any points that happen in the later episode because it is kind of hard to distinguish where they start and stop sometimes mm. if you've watched them uh, too closely together. So I'm happy I actually, with pace. I actually did when we started this one, or when I started this one, I thought that I had maybe started the wrong episode because the opening scene just felt really familiar to me, like mm-hmm. I had already seen it. 
And I don't know if maybe that meant the last time I watched it, it started to play automatically or something. But it was something about <laughs> something about Al getting up and taking a piss <laughs> in his own bedroom into a, a commode or whatever was. Uh, surprisingly familiar to me they've had a lot of scenes of him getting out of bed with trixie too so it's yeah it's, that's probably what it that is, usually yeah. ends and starts the the next episode it's the way that they bookend things so all right we're going to talk about no other sons or daughters right after we play the music you're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon join wes and clay as they discuss hbo's deadwood and tell you something pretty. This is No Other Sons or Daughters, directed by Ed Bianchi, written by George Putnam. In this episode, the United States government is poised to make an agreement with the Indians to annex the Black Hills, Deadwood included. A magistrate comes to town. An arrest warrant has appeared in Yankton, accusing Swearingen of a murder in Chicago. The Reverend Smith's health deteriorates. He imagines that his body is emitting an odor of decay. Joni decides to take Tolliver up on his offer. Swearingen assembles Deadwood's town leaders. We're forming structure enough to convince those territorial fucks in Yankton that we're worthy enough to pay them their fucking bribes, he says. Farnham requests the position of mayor. In the absence of any objections, he is given the title. Star goes to the gem to see Trexy. Cochrane examines the Reverend, who attributes his physical and mental problems to the will of God. Jane decides it's time to ride out of town. The direction of this camp makes me fucking sick. Bullock tells Alma that he has a wife and a son in Michigan and that he has written them to come join him. So. But, but, he doesn't really care about him. He just wants to make that clear. <laughs> it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that I have a wife and child, but also giving you details to let you know that I'm fully... Yep, fully well, uh, well, ready to cheat on them. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say they're not b- blood relations, but I would hope that in one case it's certainly not a blood relationship. But um, yeah, he 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 explains the situation in a way that they can both understand uh, what exactly the situation is, or the the type of thing that that type of thing might be, or whatever Charlie Otter says uh, when he's talking to Joni. Yeah, so this is No Other Sons or Daughters. I really like this episode, although it's slower than a lot of the other episodes, I think. It's a um uh it's an episode built like a lot of them are. It's it's has it's about scenes of characters interacting with each other, mm. but it's not a action packed um Swearingen yelling at Bullock type scenes that you get out of this. It's a lot more um sedate than that and uh, in my opinion the the episode is really just about like dealing with change and then dealing with the change and trying to figure out your new roles in this changing universe that you're walking Mm. into so a lot of people are trying to suss out where they belong in this episode whether they belong in the camp where they belong in relation to it to everybody else and then of course they have the the literalizing scene of it where everyone has to decide what kind of role they want to make in this, in the town government. <laughs> and that goes accordingly uh, without all the characters. But what'd you think of it? Well, I think that, that um, <clears throat> summary left off an important thing, I think, unless I missed it, which is uh, the doctor has been arrested for grave robbing seven times, seven times. Yep. It was a difficult time uh, to be a doctor <clears throat> to figure out what was going on in your head. It's it, true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really like this one. Um, the, I think, it was necessary, and I didn't find it to feel too slow, mainly because it, one of the things that I felt about the previous chunk of episodes was that they were hustling through stuff so quickly. Yeah. Like they were, um, 
they were doing all this big plot stuff with uh, Kristen Bell's character and the plague and the and the the gold claim and all this kind of stuff. It's moving very fast. The, the killing of Wild Bill. It's it, it all it it was um, just going through so much stuff so quickly that it was nice to have an episode like this where it was sort of a, a reactionary episode where people can kind of take a breath and take stock of, of what's been going on and, and, and where things are going. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, it is a, it felt more personal in some level. I, I feel like a lot of the conversations were more personal than the business oriented stuff that has been mm. happening in previous episodes. And that's kind of been a theme that's been continuing. Like, um, I'm thinking of, uh, Saul and Trixie have that sort of like that scene where he goes up to her at the gym and says that she can come to his shop anytime that she wants to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the characters some, have uh, some hot, hot foreplay yes. dialogue there <laughs> when she's like, I'm going to buy an ax, <laughs> a shovel, and a length of rope. And he's, he's like, <laughs> baby, I am not going to ask you what you're using that stuff for. Don't ask. It's but it's there thing. when you want it. <laughs> for for fair pricing, <laughs> for yeah. a fair price, just come on over to Bullock and Stars Hardware Depository. Evening, evening. I've wondered how things were with you and Mrs. Garrett and the child. I expect they're well. Now she struck lucky at her claim. Now are you, Tracy? As you see. Earning the greasy eye from my boss for idle chatter. Can I buy you a drink? I'd rather you didn't. This isn't the place for you. So you say. If you insist on my embarrassing myself, have it not where I'd want you to see me. Come see me then. He doesn't permit her making calls out. Come to our store. Come buy a broom. I don't want what I can't have, Mr. Starr. All right. If I did come, I'd buy an axe, a hammer, and a saw. All fully stocked. And we never ask the purpose of a customer's purchase. And it's like you were saying, they balance, um, it's balancing the comedy and the sort of tragedy well in it. This one is, to me, is the, um, like a, a lot of the characters are falling apart as others are. Like it basically has to do with the the change that's happening into the camp is having both positive and negative effects for everybody. I think that Al kind of personally epitomizes both aspects of that, which is that he mm-hmm. he wants the annexation to happen, but is worried about how it's going to go, and he. He spends this episode the most nervous he's ever been, I think, out of everything we've seen. He's, he's walking around. He drinks like 25 cups of coffee, he says, as he's walking around. <laughs> um, he's trying to hustle everybody up to get to this meeting where they can discuss what they need to do to pay off the bribes. And his great opening scene with Trixie is neat, too, just because they're playing off of that, that uh, the Trixie and Al relationship. And he's just explaining that. You know, he's he's trying to kind of talk himself into that the things that are happening are for the good of everybody, and he's just being hopeful that this is going to work out for everybody in the long run. Yeah, uh, he's also. I I still feel like they're really. Uh, I feel like they're really softening him up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. As I and I, I have to imagine it has something to do with the fact that Ian McShane is just so charismatic and enjoyable to watch that. The, 
that they're like, I don't know if we can make this guy be as bad as we wanted him to be because it's tough to like that if right. he's just a, an awful person. It's it's it seems to me as though Al's getting a little softer, and uh, at least in his pr- the way that they're presenting him, while Sai is getting a lot harder. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> I mean, I guess you could take that as as just uh, the evolution of the show and the, the, the sort of counterpoint thing that they've done consistently up to this point. Yeah. Um, Cy can't, but, Cy can't adapt is the, is yeah. what the show seems to be saying. Whereas Swearingen yeah. is much better at being a chameleon to what the situation de- needs. And, you know, it, it comes down to their character in terms of running the, the uh, political offices that they have to put together for these bribes. Swearingen throws the whole thing together and Cy um, doesn't do anything, which a couple characters mm-hmm. point out that he takes no position and he does nothing to sort of uh, he wants to reap the benefits but is not willing to put in the time for it. And I, yeah, I just I think that they represent those two. Be, besides the fact that it's McShane playing Al and it's it, he comes across as a softer actor, it is just like now that they've got Cy there, it's easier to split the two apart and to show them the opposite tra- uh, trajectories that the two characters yeah. are going off onto. Yeah. The one thing I was kind of confused at is why does he get so mad at Eddie mm-hmm. for speaking up during the meeting? Oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, I find it interesting that they are showing these characters to be sort of not what Al... He, they're showing Cy to not be the long-term thinker, really, that Al thinks that he is. Right. Because in that early episode, when when Cy shows up or and he says he's got another plot down the street or whatever, Al's very complimentary and like okay this guy this guy's thinking fourth dimensionally uh when it seems like he is to an extent but it's still really short-sighted thinking because he's really only thinking as far as the money he's pulling in at that moment he's not really thinking about the big picture whereas al is definitely thinking about the big picture but i still yeah what why does why does Cy get angry at eddie for for speaking up at the meeting well, couldn't our informal organization levy taxes on the settlement to pay the bribes? Say, to license businesses, wouldn't that spread the burden? Will women who pay the license fees have the same right to operate brothels as men? Because Eddie brings up the idea of our women business owners basically going to get the same rights that male business owners are going to mm-hmm. get as a way to sort of like help his friend Joni. Uh, Cy gets mad at him mostly because it's a, in the context of here, it's an extremely progressive thing to say, but yeah. Cy gets extremely annoyed because he has that scene later where he starts talking about um, when Joni comes back to, and he's been drinking and he talks about how everyone they were on the right path and then everyone that he came to Deadwood with has decided to do their own thing and it's making him mm. angry. So uh, Eddie, Eddie saying that is something that flies in the face of what Cy wants to do, which is that Cy is very rigid about, it's what you were saying, like he's buying property, but he doesn't see the big picture. He's just trying to maximize revenue that he can get. Right. Yeah. So he's being upset by everyone going around and sort of having different opinions about the way things should be other than the opinion that he has and he thinks that he his opinion is right, obviously. Hi, Sai. I was afraid I lost you to the heathens. How's that meeting? All right. Been organizing for annexation until Eddie cracked his fucking mouth. What a turn to then. 
joint like ours, Johnny, what are we selling? Walk through this door. It's a new start. Come on in, try your luck here. Of course, we know. The percentages being the percentages, you play long enough. Your luck ain't gonna get no better here than anywhere else. Maybe it's cause we're in a brand new camp. Since we arrived, certain people that are near and dear to me seem to butt into our own fucking line and now they're trying to get me to go along. But I can't. See, Johnny? Cause I'm a big boy. Now I'm ready for getting me to have a little chat. And he has all these different opinions, but he's not actually doing anything. Like, I, I think it's probably partially, yeah, a little bit of insecurity in the fact yes. that he, yep. he has opinions about what everybody else is doing, but what he's actually doing is nothing. It was very contro- so, he's very, he's controlling, and I guess he would, like, it's sort of a, I don't know if you call it low self-esteem, but he's, he's desperate to control everybody that's around right. him, and he, he's, insecure, he's too insecure to be able to manage people doing what they want to do or deal with different ideas in the way that Al deals with ideas a little bit better than Sai does. Sai's very rigid, and his rigidity causes his violence to come out when people don't do yeah. what he wants. It's, I, I find there the... I find the juxtaposition of these two characters like endlessly interesting because he is so rigid and so controlling in a way that feels like feels similar to Al, but Al's really more of a if if someone were to come up to Sai, if one of his guys were to come up with Sai and say, "I'm thinking about doing this. This is what I want to do." He would you know, pull out the knives and tell them all the reasons why they can't do it yep. and why they need to do what he says. And if the same, if one, if the uh, similar person went up to Al, Al's answer would be, I don't give a shit. Do what the fuck you want. Right. But he would still have a little, he would still have the string, hold of the string, but he is definitely a lot more, uh, at least creates the illusion of independence at the gym. Yeah. He's open to, um, if not outright independence, he's, he's sort of open to suggestions from the others. Like it, it, obviously, yeah. in this one, he gives uh, Johnny Burns more responsibility. Even <laughs> like the the, the <laughs> Sai would Sai would not give Burns more responsibility through that sequence. You know, like they, right, they yeah. Sai would probably think that Burns is an idiot, but he would not eventually end up giving him the the role that he's trying to to work himself into. Utter freight and postal delivery service. That's what happens when you drop a fucking stitch. What stitch did I draw? I did. This freight and delivery service should be opened by Persimmon Phil as a cover for his other fucking activities. He's dead. I know he's dead now. Well, if you don't know, nobody does. I should have brought in a replacement, is my fucking point. Well, you'll know better next time. The direction of my thoughts, with the sustained fucking stupidity that you're exhibiting, I hesitate to voice him is that you might want to train for Phil's former position. Al, I have hoped for this conversation ever since you give me that Indian head to hide. Side just gets nasty. He has the ending sequence where he accuses Eddie of being a pedophile. I, I mean, it's assumed that yeah. Eddie's homosexual, but Sai's sort of at least just insulting him by saying he's a pedophile. Um, and he just gets, Eddie has the great final line of just being like, you know, I wish you had taken one of those positions in the town just so you'd have less time to be an evil cocksucker or whatever he calls him. <laughs> but. Eddie Sawyer, 
Can we keep this short? Sure, Eddie. If he finds you a 12 year old farm boy to have some fun with, is that short enough for you? I never did that, and you know it. <laughs> All this crap about what he is and isn't natural. Whatever does it for a fellow is what does it, ain't that right? I never did that. But did you ever want to unbutton some farm boy's tittens and get yourself some relaxation? That's what I'm asking you. Take that boy you spoke up for up in Joni's room the other day. I spoke up for not torturing that boy. But what you spoke for and what you would have wanted to do if it was if it was just you and that cornfed in that room alone is what I'm inquiring about the difference between. Dry hole, sign. Ah, you can work that out. You just use some spit on that or lard. 17 fucking years and I never saw a look on your face like I saw up there in that room the other day. Including when I had to smack some girl around. I was never in a room with you before where you was gonna kill somebody. Now, I do not make judgments. I gave that up a long time ago. All I want is for us to get along better, Eddie. So every time you open your mouth in public, I don't have to worry about what the fuck's gonna come out. So let me get you some fucking kid to fuck in the ass of the mouth or suck his prick or let him fuck you. Fuck you, sorry. Fuck you. Now, now, that's where I draw the line. Friend or no friend, or us want to get along better or not. I want you to go up into Joni's room, which I, I gather she don't want to go into no more. I want you to go up there and think this thing through. Imagine yourself up there with that boy, and like you were the other day, only this time it's just him and you. And I want you to figure out what it is that you want. Because next time we see each other, I want you clear-headed, Eddie, and understanding yourself. The old Eddie that knows the percentages and how to play them and whatever a man does away from the table is his own fucking business. I want you cheerful and ready to help me with my work. I don't want you coming to fuck out. Hmm? You finish your shift and you go up there to Joni's room. You think things through. All right, Eddie Sawyer. Do we understand each other? Once you volunteer for something that meeting, why didn't you put your hand up? Could have kept you from being such an evil cocksucker. Yeah, I, I still think some of the best character writing they've done to show you the kind of person that Al is is from the last episode where he has the where the uh, the kid comes up and asks him if he can take the day off to go look at for his mm-hmm. uh, his father and his response is even if I said no I'd hope you'd do it and then find another place to work because obviously you'd be fired right but you know it's like that's that's the kind of person he is which is almost it's honorable to the point that he's a dishonorable guy, if that makes sense. Like yeah. there's something weirdly honorable about his his dishonesty. Yeah, his he has the uh, I wouldn't trust somebody who didn't try to steal a little ethos. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah Al's um. I just I really liked his performance here. Just how stressed out he is when he's like banging yeah. around. And he yells at Merrick. He's like, "Where the fuck have you been?" <laughs> um, Are they trying to set up? There's something funky going on with Merrick. No, I think he was just out getting supplies. I think I was okay. just nervous about it. Yeah. I vaguely, I vaguely remember Merrick ending up as like an opium addict or something. Is oh, that, really? <laughs> I'm gonna assume that doesn't happen, but no for spo- some reason, yeah, I, I can't remember. No, no spoilers. But he doesn't. Um, he doesn't get the he he's he was about to open his mouth to take the mayor job, at least for me, B. But he didn't open his mouth in time, and then he. He has the sequence where he's, um, it seems like he's plotting a little because there's a scene where he's at the bar drinking alone and it sounds like he's talking to somebody, but the, mm-hmm. the camera pans and he's not talking to anybody. He's just talking about how he, 
he values the fourth estate so highly that he would he wouldn't allow himself to take a uh, like a governmental role that would not allow him to run the paper yeah, and stuff like that. I like that. That, that was a good scene. <laughs> he has a pretty good throwaway joke too about um when Charlie Otter comes into the meeting and he's just and he's uh he announces his shop and then Merrick just has a line where he's like and he ran a fantastic ad in today's yes. uh pioneer. So check that out. Yeah, yeah. I I also I also really liked the Charlie Utter and Joni scene at the end where she's mentions the meeting and obviously he had no idea about it and he's like, Yes, of course. Right. I am I like to be late for things like that. And she's <laughs> like, Yeah, well it's crazy that, you know, it's at the gem yep. because of this. And he's like, Yep. That's exactly why I think it's there as well. That's that's such and, a great scene. Uh, to, to, yeah, for her, really it, it just shows how much they like each other. Where she lets him down gently and doesn't try to embarrass him. Uh, yeah, by not knowing that or realizing that he wasn't invited. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a um, Charlie Utter is an interesting character. Callie's performance is really good, but he uh, he mixes well with a lot of the other characters, and he's he's a. Uh, He's like a great relaxing force for most of the characters, except for Jane when she's at her worst. But he he's able to uh, ingratiate himself with a lot of the other characters, even if they're all from different backgrounds, and find some kind of connection with them. And it leads to good scenes between him and everybody else. Yeah, he's he's so good, and it's <sighs> this is mean to say, but he's like he's got a face mm-hmm. that looks like <laughs> it's made out of 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 dirt <laughs> like he looks like he's Clayface, the batman villain stuck between transitions or something because mm-hmm. he's got like the top of his head looks human but then as it goes down into his neck it gets like darker and grainier and like dirtier and kind of yep. like hair and he's got pock marks and stuff and he's uh, he's just not a uh conventionally attractive man yeah but he's <clears throat> that really adds so much to the character and what they're doing with him. And I just, it's, I don't know. It's nice to see an actor who looks different. You know, yeah. he's, I mean, he's not, he's not the elephant man or anything, but he's just, no, he's, he's not, not a, tr- he's not elephants or anything like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, but who of us are, who, who can be, there should be more. No, I, I love his performance. I think he's, um, I think he he just pairs well with every other character. And he talks to a lot of yeah. characters in this one. He talks to Jane. He talks to Seth. He has a scene at the gym. He talks to um, somebody else. He has one other scene that pops out about Joni and everything like that. But it's he's, he's nice. He's just he's not an idiot and he's not naive, but he's got sort of a innocence about him. Yep. You know, especially in a scene like this where he's clearly out of his depth and he's. Uh, not not out of his depth in that he's going to fail, but that he's doing something Trying new. Something new. He, yeah. Yeah. And he just the way that he sort of almost like a puppy dog has this conversation with Joni is just so endearing. Yeah. 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 This show's great. This ca- every every character in the show is is a home run. Yeah. I, I in turn and even additionally to the characters, I just like the um you know, where we I, I mentioned it before, but we like the other shows we do are like Star Trek Picard and stuff like that, right? And it's like mm-hmm. I'm just I'm really struck by the number of scenes in this show that are the text and the subtext are different from each other in yeah. like numerous scenes. So it's like there's there's never 
there's never just a character having a scene where they just literally like explain some information to somebody else. There, right. There's always some either there's a reason that they're telling the information or there's a subtext to another story that the character is involved in that is being realized through the conversation that they're having with the other character. So like the the Charlie Otter and Joni thing is a good example because they're both out there sort of unsure about what they're doing, what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And th- their conversation builds on that. Uh, you off someplace? Uh, you need an escort or the like? No, I'm more or less just walking around. What do you think of this rock cool? Very well fitted. I'd have made up in Cheyenne. I'm one for a good appearance and all, but it's a little out of my path. If you'd have made me guess, I would have said it's not your usual garb. And I'm a considerable hand at the freight business, but as far as at least in this building, before knowing what the traffic's going to bear, I don't know what possessed me. See, I, I do well in a camp or a settlement or a township. But that don't make me a camp or a settlement or a township type. This is the attire for that type of type. He he's not going. He's he's explaining sort of like how he feels, and he sort of realizes that Joni feels the same way. And he he doesn't ask her how she's feeling. He just explains how he's feeling, and through her realizing that they're both going through the same thing, they have this bonding session going on. Yeah. But there's there's not this incredibly obvious thing of Charlie's like, well, I'm you know I know what your problem is is you can get a you can get a lease and buy a house or something. It's much more subtle than that, and a lot of the scenes build off of that stuff like when jane is yelling at the dock you know it's it's hard to the jane character is a very difficult character to write because she's so unlikable when she's at her worst in these cases but they they keep finding ways to make her likable like the the fact that the doctor the doctor walking by her while she's standing up asleep leaning against the wall with her face is one of the funniest things i've seen in the show it's so good and like the the conversation that they have after that is is very tense and and angry but just the the lead into it is so goofy yeah and even like the stuff with the reverend too where he's going through something serious and and depressing he's talking about not only is he you have the he's lost the use of the entire left side of his body it seems but he's yep. going through a, a crisis of faith yeah and what they couch that in him asking if she smells anything and he she automatically is like what are you trying to accuse me of drinking again <laughs> are you trying to assume that maybe i have a, a casual drink when i get off work which i definitely don't do yeah you know it's it's so yep. it's so good it's so clever I'm heading for the gym. Who right for you? Reverend is laid down trying to hide another seizure. Ain't she clever to see through this subterfuge? I've been letting it go. But if the idea is for you to drink more and more till I say something, I am hereby officially saying I wish you would stop fucking drinking. I have no fucking ideas as far as you saying one fucking thing about anything I do or don't. As far as drinking, 
or where I stand or nap, or any other fucking thing concerning me. Or go, or leave, or don't, or win. Right, Jane. So you can go fuck yourself, and don't try and hasten anyone anywhere, because everyone follows their own fucking pace, and don't try and fucking hasten them. If you happen to be fucking overlooking, then you think it's just one day after another with the same fucking seizure as if it happened a week before. And that shows how much you fucking know and what you pay attention to. God damn you. I like the doc scene with Jane just because he... Um when he's, you know, he's he's sort of opening his heart to her, just saying like, "I, I wish you didn't drink." Like, it, and the, the yeah. whole thing has been like, people are trying to save Jane. Charlie's offering her jobs, which happens afterwards, and she doesn't take it. But Doc wants her to, you know, be the nurse that he knew she can be and help the town. He wants her to stop drinking, um, and she just cuts back at him in the way that drives the later action where he talks to the Reverend about it because she has the line saying like, who the fuck are you saying that the doctor's having a seizure now and how different it is from last week? It's, he, she's basically accusing him of not paying attention to how sick the reverend is mm, at that point. Yeah. And so it hurts him. And she also lashes out at, because the frock coat thing had been a running joke up to that point when Charlie offers her the jobs in the uh, at his mail route and is trying to help her. Her final line to him is just like she's never seen him dressed so awfully, and it's like yeah. you know, it's just it's hitting him right at his most insecure thing because he's obviously very concerned about how the jacket makes him look and like how mm-hmm. he how he's settling into this new role. And I don't know, she Jane is a tough character to play and to write just because you can't have her be too unlikable, but you can't have her be too. Uh, Slapstick, slapsticky, yeah. At the same yeah. time, or or even like, um, you shouldn't feel too too bad for her either. I don't think right. like she she kind of yeah. has to walk this line of being an asshole but being a likable asshole at the at the same time. Yeah, there's <clears throat> with her. There's there's a certain element of being amused by how over the top she is and how um uh defensive and antagonistic she can be yeah but 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 it's at the end of at the base of it you're always kind of rooting for her and so i think because you can see that she's not she's not just a character who's being shitty for the sake of being shitty she's clearly troubled yeah and i think that's what makes her so um such a great character. I think we've said this before. It's because she's not just there for comedic or, or antagonistic effect. Like it's, it is rooted in trauma and uh, insecurity and all this other stuff that comes so clearly comes out through the way that she acts, but they never really talk about yeah. specifically. Yeah. And in this one, I think they, they position her really well in her, the, the conversation that she has with Charlie because it's basically they kind of sum up through her struggle to stop drinking her inability to really move on and go on with her life yeah and so ultimately she realizes that in order to do that she can't do it here 
and you and you have these two characters who are kind of similar because they obviously came in they're part of the same group or whatever and charlie is choosing one path and she's choosing the other path yeah yeah she has that line about um she she can't drink where he is referencing bill and she can't not drink anywhere else something like yeah. that which is kind of mm-hmm. sticks to where, where she is the other the other scene besides the fact that she yells at Doc, I think is like is very effective is when um she's working in the pest tent and the Reverend comes in to take his shift from her. Mm-hmm. And he's been hiding his sickness from Cochrane and she gets upset with him. Uh that's where he sort of he makes the comment about his smell and she and she insinuates it uh, she thinks he thinks that she's been drinking. But she's very she she does that balancing act again. She's very cruel to him. Right. But at the same time, she's also sort of giving him a motivational speak to like, you have to tell the doc that you don't feel well right. and like deal with this. But like the, there's that sort of it, it just ends it with like the tragedy of like he tries to pick up the cleaning water and has sort of like a minor seizure and falls down with it. And she's mm-hmm. like, you mm-hmm. spilt my fucking cleaning water. And then she slaps him on the shoulder and says, I'm off and you're on right now. And then just immediately steps out. And her first step out of the tent, she pulls a flask out and starts drinking. Um, it's just a. It's a well done balancing act between you know he, you can't play that scene where she's too awful to re, to to the reverend like she can't have no point in being mad at him right and they just balance it well with like she's being unreasonable but she's pointing out an unreasonable trait in another character at the same time yeah I think the show is just really great at people getting angry about stuff that isn't the thing they're actively being angry about yeah. Like you were saying, it's there's so much subtext to everything that's going on. Her getting mad at the Reverend is not just her getting mad at the Reverend. She's mad at herself in her own situation, and she's taking it out on him as well as being mad that he he's not he's not helping himself as much as she's not helping herself. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so it's it's just really it's really well done. It's it's a good show. I continue to really like um, the Reverend. It has one of my uh, my own. When he, Cochran finally gets to examine him, and he says that the the word of God no longer moves him, um, and he's suffering. But this must be God's will. Um, I just I uh, Cochran sums up my own personal view on um, the the idea of like a divine creator god which is that if this is his will then he must be a real son of a bitch um <laughs> I, I i like that i i that it's another example of cochran sort of cutting through what the other characters think with his own vision of the world and sort of mm-hmm. applying it to them um but i i i think amy was asking me on this rewatch like what characters do i think have changed my my opinion has changed the most and i think i think the reverend is one of them um he he the first couple times I watched the show, I don't think he, I really appreciated his. Uh, it's sort of hard to track what the Reverend is intentionally doing and what he's not doing, and what what he's doing on purpose and what he's sort of accidentally falling into at, mm-hmm. at the same time. So whether when he talks to other characters and he sort of pinpoints what their flaws or how they can be helpful to uh, to things, like when he talks to Bullock. It's unclear about whether I think Kyle was mentioning on the Discord, like how intentional he is about this stuff. But even if he's not intentional, his belief in the faith, his belief in his in the faith and what he's saying and what he believes is the right thing to do, is 
touching. And of course, he's the one who's getting the most ill from this brain tumor that's slowly killing him and making him believe that he's already dead because he thinks that he smells like a corpse and stuff like that. So it's very sad, um, but he's he's such a a different character from all the rest of them because the rest of them have almost no religiosity to them. So he's yeah. he's very distinct in, in that way. And I think that he just has interesting things to say. And Cochran interacting with him is always excellent. Yeah, he... Um... <clears throat> This the this uh, some um, evolution of his character is interesting to me because because he's set up as this like you're saying he believes everything that he says and he's set up as this sort of uh, voice of conscience through his sermons and stuff and now that's wearing away on him and and he has to kind of face up to uh the reality of the situation that he's in yeah and uh i think i think pairing him with the doctor is is a good is a good foil for him is the opposite of what you were saying in that um the characters get angry at stuff that is not what they're angry about he does he refuses to get angry at god for putting him in this position you know right he's, he's not the one he's the, the reverend is almost like um, he, he's almost impossible to get. Ang- We've never seen him get angry, right? Like he's just impossible to yeah. to get to do be angry, even if he's in this kind of situation. And he he refuses to blame others um, as he easily could in the condition that he's in. You know, it's the same at the same time too. It's in, in this scene, he's not angry, but he's also just not helping himself right. which is obviously what the doctor is trying to get across to him he's he's no good to anybody if he doesn't help himself and it's it is an interesting way to have him play that out because it, it, have putting him in a situation where he can he can affect his own life but he doesn't yep because he, honestly, I you know I don't know. I mean, it makes me wonder if he actually believes what he's saying there. That he does this is God's will, so he's just going to let it happen. I don't know if I totally believe that. Like it's oh, it, in what in what sense? Because I, I, I guess know. that I would, I would say that it is because he's what, what I th- what I think Milch is doing with this with the, with the Reverend is that. Milch seems to have a stronger belief and sort of agrees with characters like Swearingen who are people who sort of take the bumps and then roll with them and adapt them to something that they want. And he's Mm – the commentary on the Reverend is that just believing that things are God's will and not fighting back against it is sort of giving up in the face of the punishment that comes for you. Yeah, it's a positive I, I way of looking at it. But he, he that, Cochran, I think, represents the the pushback against that of like, d- it's the don't go quietly into that dark night type thing. Right, you know, it's like you f- rage against the dying of the light or whatever. Man, I'll tell you, I did not go quietly into the dark night. I was so psyched to see that, <laughs> and I came out just as psyched as when I went in. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. But there's something about that scene where juxtaposing what he's saying about it being God's will with the fact that he says he doesn't get the same he doesn't, doesn't move him the same, the same way yeah either. yeah uh 
it doesn't it the god's word doesn't move him the same way feels feels to me like there's there's something else going on in there that maybe him not taking action is is sort of covering up i'm not sure mm. i don't know maybe i'm thinking about it too much but i i i, I find him to be a uh a, a, a continue to be a fascinating character in, in how they're they're portraying him yeah i see him as just um the word of God not moving him anymore. He lumps in with that is God's will, and like he's not, he's not. He he said, he mentions the Cochrane that he's not suffering from pain. It's just the fact that God has cut him out from his life. Basically, mm. that that's where his his true pain comes from. Um, it, it's he's being, you know, it, it ties back into the, the Reverend's been preaching about the the body, about how the different parts of the yeah. body come together as one whole. He's being cut out from. You know, I'm not religious, but like the body of Christ essentially has been like he's been removed from that. Yeah, I guess what I'm thinking, I guess kind of what I'm thinking is that do you think that he would act differently if he was in the same situation, but the word of God did continue to move him? Do you think is is his acquiescing to God's will, quote unquote, his way of trying to force his way back into the good graces as he might understand it you know what i mean oh i see so like um is he would he be i i think he if he if he was still moved by the word i think that he would be a happier character dying the same way mm. Okay. So you you would you would feel he he would be different cuz i i would just well, see I him know. to be I, he would, he would embrace his impending death more happily because yeah. he knows that where he's going is the thing that he wants to die for. Yeah, you're probably right. I don't have an answer to this. I was just yeah. I'm just thinking about it because uh, it is such a, a a change for him. Yeah. And I mean, how much of it is just the plot of his tumor, right? That he's not the same right. person that he was. Um, oh, they should do that thing where he just all of a sudden can speak Mandarin or something. Yes. <laughs> One of those tumors. <laughs> just talking to Wu in the background of every single scene. Uh, he just he has, shows up with an Australian accent. I'm like, what, what happened? Like, I don't know. I, I never talked like this before. <laughs> it's a different not, actor. Not till me noggin got bonked. <laughs> There's a lot of bonked noggins going on. Jane you has know a funny been great? Eye. You know who would have been great on this show? Bob Hoskins. Yeah. He would have been He'd be a minor. spectacular on this show. <laughs> They have Brian Cox in the third season. He's not quite the oh, same. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I wish you hadn't told me that. No. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they got I'm it. so excited. <laughs> um, yeah. Had some good Brian Cox action on the uh, Rotten Horror Picture Show. This, oh, in, what this movie? Past week. Uh, the Ring. He's He plays Samara's uh, oh, he, dad. Oh, that's right. He does. Yeah, yeah, like on the videotapes, right? Or do you actually meet him? No, you actually meet him. And okay. then he, uh, he takes a bath covered in electrical wires right. and kills himself. Yeah, yeah. So say we all. Um, <laughs> I guess, and I guess the only, uh, just looking through the the scene descriptions here, uh, I mean, it's really just the the other binding thing that we talked a little bit is Seth and Alma have their bonding session, and mm-hmm. Seth reveals uh, his family that is coming in and what the relationship with them is and everything like that is. Now I ask why you spoke of your brother. My wife was his widow. My boy's their child. I see. 
Uh, Ellsworth meets with Alma and agrees to work on her claim, which is nice. And he bonds with Sophia. Uh, so the Garrett uh, claim is going to be able to stay there and she'll keep her hands on it. And as the magistrate Claggett says that you have to, uh, whatever land or property you've been working on when the annexation comes will become yours. So she has to stay there for a bit. Uh, Claggett in the town, I think, are the last bit to talk about. Uh, I love the scene with Claggett and Al. I think that's mm-hmm. terrific. Um, this The show <laughs> itself... The show itself operates in a kind of a, a similar position as The Wire, which is that it likes everything until institutions become institute or culture becomes institutionalized, and then it thinks that at that point something breaks within it. Uh, Merrick is a good example of the newspaper type stuff in the Fourth Estate. Uh, Claggett is a great example of like the government that's coming for them is not a great savior to Deadwood. It's a right. necessary evil that they have to deal with and they have to pay bribes. And it's a corrupt U.S. government that's coming in to sort of like basically act like the mafia and take what they can and allow people to have what little remains at the end of it. But I was trying to negotiate that with Claggett, who um, is just a wonderful bureaucrat who says a bunch of flowery nonsense, but ultimately just comes down to, I need $5,000 from you. <laughs> But what complicates the situation is that the hills were deeded to the Sioux by the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. This could mean that the land occupied by the camp doesn't fall under any statutory definition of unclaimed or unincorporated. So who needs to get paid? Signs of conciliation and willingness would weigh in the camp's favor. But just as important is the presence of a ad hoc municipal organization it would enable the legislature to say, Deadwood exists. We don't have to create it. It would be disruptive if we did. The community's already organized, not legally maybe, but certainly informally. Why not let's give this informal organization the blessing of legal standing? What's the right fucking number for the legislature? There's a lot of gold out here, Al. To define right in this environment is very liable to be an ongoing process. What I'm prepared to do is make a list of names and a preliminary guess at some numbers. Yeah, I really like that scene too, where he's he keeps trying to be flowery about it, and else just like, just tell me who I need to pay. I don't need the one hand and the other hand is in any of this kind of shit. Yeah, you know, it's another it's another thing difference between. Al and Cy, because I think Al is a good politician. Yeah, I don't think Cy understands. But well, he might understand it, but he's—I don't think he's good at it. No, no. Like I, I can easily see Al hanging, hanging on by his fingernails to end up as the as the person who is legally in charge of Deadwood. Yeah. Once once the government comes, and I I think Cy would be long gone before that happens. No, I mean, has Cy ever had a conversation where someone disagrees with him and he doesn't get that angry Powers Booth who's like, you, this guy's a piece of trash. <laughs> do that nice away. do that nice Powers Booth, like lower the head and turn towards the camera thing. <laughs> he strokes his mustache. What did you what did you say to me? <laughs> that's that's every that's every uh, side Tolliver thing. He's just he doesn't handle adversity well. Um, you know, obviously, the adversity he dealt with Miles and Flora in the last episode resulted in their immediate death. At that point, mm-hmm. so we get a reminder of that because we see the dress and uh, Wu's pig pen. Um, yeah, Al's just uh, 
Remember that scene where Joni freaks out because she's never seen Asian people before? <laughs> She I know that's not exactly what it was, but doesn't leave the house. She's in a, she's in a man's world out there, and uh, it's a little bit it's scary to find a place to rent. That's not the area you'd want to open your brothel. I don't think. No, probably not. Uh, yeah, I was just I was a better politician. Uh, Claggett is. <laughs> I like um, Claggett's final line. Just strikes me as funny. He's like, "I'm going to continue writing now, if you don't mind." <laughs> He's writing down, <laughs> writing down the names and the bribes. But that all culminates in uh, the town gets assembled or the pillars of the community are assembled to take their ad hoc positions. Oh, um, man. I love the, the Latin stuff in the show. It's hilarious. <laughs> Which I, I always read that scene as just, you know, Milch's um, Claggett is the bureaucracy that's coming. And this, this the town stuff in the meeting is just a satire of like either meetings in general or just the sort of like nonsense of political appointments in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Al can't run the meeting without Dan coming in talking about the piano <laughs> and, yeah. and stuff like that. It's it's all very good. It's a very funny and also very um, cutting in terms of you know like sometimes the the politician that wins the highest role of mayor is just the only person who raises their hand and no one else says them to right, shut the fuck yeah. up. I can't, I can't believe nobody said, uh, maybe not this fucking guy, <laughs> well, but it's like, <laughs> that's one of those things that's so funny about it is because nobody opposes it, but everyone's like, well, this is just temporary. This is yeah. Bullock's line after he gets appointed mayor is that, you know, he says like, these are temporary positions on a temporary position, <laughs> uh, time basis that we're soon going to be get rid of. But yeah, no one just, no one raises their hand to fight off EB who is, um, Sanderson is just endlessly charming as someone who takes a lot of pride in these fake roles that they're making oh, up. He's so good. <laughs> What's that got to do with the price of fish? Our proper order of fucking business is to make titles and departments before the territorial cocksuckers sending their cousins to rob and steal from us. Well, who fills the various positions? Pick the names from a fucking hat as far as I'm concerned. I'd like to be mayor. Objections? Mayor. Wouldn't a good use for an informal organization with temporary appointees be providing a few services to the camp? Mayor? Well, provide a few services and use a lion's share of revenues to pay the bribes. And he kind of, I think, I believe it's him that says this, which is sort of uh the the cherry on the satire which is when he says taking people's money is what makes an organization official yes it's like it yep. doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what the hell it is once you start taking people's money then it becomes a, a, an official body yep which yep. is yeah kind of pretty much well even even in their ad hoc you know on a whim fake uh government that they're forming right they immediately pass the buck to tax other people Instead of paying for it, you know, like the, yeah. the solution they come up with is that they have to levy taxes and to pay the bribes that are going to be coming in. It's just a right. it's, it's just a very cutting take on like the community that's forming. Deadwood just seems to distinguish itself between there's a, there's a community aspect. And then once things become institutionalized and you actually have government and other agencies building up around it the grift just automatically follows that development. And like, yeah. it's impossible to, you know, there's no, I don't think Milch believes in like a, a world of like communism basically, which is that like, there is no sort of government and that everyone can just live in the camp 
the way that they were when they got there and things will develop swimmingly. There's there's more it has that wire outlook of like things are coming that are going to change the characters and act on the characters and it's not always good. Yeah. And I mean even more so than a satire, I do think that that line <clears throat> is is correct. It's actually very smart because what they're doing there is they're trying to to bring a government to an area that as such has had no government whatsoever. And if they just decide tomorrow, they go out and say, okay, now EB is the mayor. And then you got to listen to us from now on. Everybody tell them to go fuck themselves. Right. But the minute, <laughs> the minute that they have to pay taxes, it yep. becomes a legitimate government, even if it's really not. It's yep. like, you know how they, in the, in the, uh, when you're when you're char- when you're uh, budgeting or giving someone a quote for something, at least you know when I when I do it, the one of the uh, things that people say is, "Don't be afraid to ask for more mm-hmm. because if you ask for less, people like respect you less." Yeah, <laughs> where it's like they're ex- they're expecting this is going to cost money, and so if you come in way under what they're expecting, they're like, "Oh well, this guy isn't serious." Right. So if you go. Yeah, and so it's it is funny how how that stuff really all it takes is if you if you if you ask for if you ask for a price that seems like a professional price they're like oh this guy's legit he's a professional. This is a weird tangent, but there was just a um, I was watching a YouTube video that was kind of talking about that, and he brought up an interesting point that I'm going to butcher here because I I can't remember the specifics of it, but it was the it was the it was a guy giving a course about like business negotiation or something like that mm-hmm. and just arguing about a per hour rate, right? Which is that yeah. it's it's hard to there's the there's the schism between a per hour rate is kind of bad for people because do, wouldn't you want to reward me if I could do this in 1 hour as opposed to saying this is going to take me 10 hours? Oh why, yeah. Why Sucks. shouldn't you pay me <laughs> the amount that Basically, you're paying for the value of the thing. So why why does the right. amount of time matter? If I get it to you quickly, you should value it more because I did it efficiently and I got you, you got you exactly what you wanted quickly. Right. Yeah. 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 And I mean, no, this is a whole other conversation. But like when it comes down, when it, you get into uh, art related stuff and graphic design, it's like yes, I c- you can do it quickly. It, let's say you charge fifty dollars an hour and you do it an hour, it's fifty bucks, but does that take into account what this is going to be used for? Right. Is this like, did I just create a logo and letterhead for a company that's going to be? Did you create Clippy for Windows? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Did I? Did I being paid fifty dollars an hour in forty five minutes make this thing that is that is going to be the face of your company? And also, if I did it in forty, if you're paying me by the hour and I do it in forty five minutes, are you going to go? I don't know. I may, I don't think this is this is it. Right. Like just because I did it quickly, you yeah. know. Yeah. No, that's the whole. Yeah, that's the whole uh, argument about it, which I never really, I never really thought about, but it does make sense. There's no. Uh, you. It's just that's hard why to you got to do, do. Yeah, you got to do it like Scotty. You got to quote him how many hours it's going to cost. Right. It's like Scotty in reverse, <laughs> where it's like, no, I'm gonna. I, I know I can do this in an hour, but I'm gonna quote you at six. <laughs> Hello, computer, and then, and then open Photoshop and say hello, computer, and do your mouse. That's most of my day. <laughs> um, anything, uh, and just to, you know, to uh, 
to further close the book on the Psy and Al and how they interact with people, uh, Johnny, under his own initiative, decides to open a can of peaches in Paris for people, and Al praises him for it, saying that was a good idea. But people might be getting sick from it, or at least one guy. That's true, yeah. It did not sit well with Tom Nuttall, who... uh, it's feeling better, but looked to be in rough shape at that very moment. Yeah, I, I also did, did want to talk about the um, the book ending, Trixie and Al stuff. Yep, uh, because in both of those scenes, they show Trixie as being more independent with what's her relationship with Al. Yeah, at the beginning, you have him asking if she's going to be bringing him more, if he can expect to get gold from her regularly and she's like no that's not going to happen and then at the end after he see kind of sees her talking to to saul he says what is he it, between now and the last time i saw you did you make me five bucks or something yes yeah and she's just like no and then they just shut the lights off and go to bed so yep. there's there's definitely an evolution of their relationship happening whether that's because of al changing or whether that's because trixie is getting a little bit better understanding of her own self-worth i yeah, don't know or possibilities that are out there because you yeah. know the saul is now a possibility because she's clearly interested in saul too yeah uh yeah it's it's that evolution i i like the opening scene just because al and al's clearly nervous about the way that the annexation and the bribes are going to go but he's ends it with the concern about her he has the line about like don't try to do yourself like that ever again mm-hmm. and then leaves with her suicide attempt um. Yeah, it's just a. He asks her how her arm is, though. Yes. Which shows that he does care. Oh, that's that's what I mean. And he he yeah. he, he 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 shows his caring by saying by sort of threatening her not to kill herself. You know, right, like he he can't right. be overly nice about it, but he has to sort of like show that he cares by um being mean in 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 a way. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting relationship just because um I think a lot of the romances are kind of like a little bit askew. Uh like they we don't spend a lot of time with Al and Trixie, really. Like uh, you you'd almost be forgiven for not even realizing that they really have a relationship with each other. Um mm-hmm. because they don't they don't talk about it out in the open and similarly like you the other relationship is obviously alma and seth which is another sort of inversion or at least like this like funhouse mirror of the traditional western thing where you would expect that relationship to be something that you're rooting for to happen but it does not seem like a good idea to anybody or even to those characters so right yeah it's it's this relationship that you're predisposed to be like yeah like make the leap like grab her and kiss her you know in that traditional western style but like the minute they both realize the danger of what's going on and they're sort of like trying to figure out loopholes that will enable them to get around it so there's weird relationships it's kind of like the the funhouse mirror version of wyatt earp and uh dana delaney and tombstone Mm -hmm. (laughs) where it's they 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 present that as Wyatt Earp meeting the great love of his life or right, whatever. And right. you're like, he's got a wife yeah. <laughs> who's in town with him dying from a laudanum addiction. Yep. And he's just, but we're like, oh, they're going horse riding together. Oh my God, <laughs> it's so beautiful. 
And then the, the movie ends with them dancing in the snow. Yeah. And it's like, what happened to his dying drug addicted <laughs> wife? And in this one, in this one, they, they played, I feel like they position it a lot more realistically where it's like, yeah, Alma, yeah, you got the hots for this guy, but I don't know if now's the time. Yeah. You've got, and you've got with, things to do. Yeah. And Seth is like, yeah, I've got a wife and a kid. I don't really care about. I mean, I kind of, I kind, I care about them because I have to. You know, you yeah. know how it is. He's, ob- he's obligated. He has a right. Yeah, just like a legal obligation. But you know, there's even like, you know, they're they're trying to fight it off. She says like, I'm sure you have many competing interests on your mind, and he's like, a couple. You know, in a, in a more traditional rom like romance thing would just be like, there would be some line that would not imply that he's trying to have other things to do. At the same time, you know, mm-hmm. like that the, there's there is no competing interest for her, for her heart or whatever. But I think what they do actually well, again to compare it to Tombstone, is in Tombstone, his wife's state mm-hmm. is definitely portrayed as negative and something that he should kind of not want to deal with you, you mean know? her like her negativity towards life yeah in general. she's yeah. she's she's a drug addict and she's always being shitty to him just laying around in her yeah her and bed. it's like yeah of course he's gonna want to go somewhere else in this one they position seth's wife and kid as completely innocent and not only that but it's that she's a widow yeah and he's all that they have and so even though they do it in such a way to make it look like seth being like well you know it's an obligation but so you know i can kind of i think we can probably make side piece yeah yeah word hasn't been invented yet but i think i think the audience at least how i viewed it was okay yeah he's not doing something that's terribly altruistic here it's not like he's listening to his heart for the greater yeah. universe of of love kind of thing it's yeah. it's like yeah uh, this is questionable yep he's a um fits his character right he's a man who on his face claims to care about the the right and wrong sure. of things yeah. but is actually ruled by his passions so. uh, he i'm sure he definitely married his brother's wife because he thought it was the right thing quote unquote the right thing to do yeah do you remember who the wife is I don't know. And a gun. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Martha Bullock. So, um, yeah, that's that's funny because I believe I would believe that she could take him in a fight. Yeah, she's 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 she she. she they don't need a horse when they come to town. She just she's carrying everything. <laughs> um, no, yeah, they. Uh, they come. I mean, she's, she's right around the corner because the season's almost over. So she's in season two. Um, that's it, I guess. So we've talked about everybody. We talked about Joni. We talked about uh, and Eddie. We did talk about them. Jane, Johnny Burns, Seth, and Trixie. I think so. Isn't it? Isn't it so kind of refreshing to have a show where you can? We could have spent an hour probably talking about any two characters in the show. Yep. Everybody has so much stuff to do, and it all feels so vital. Yeah, compared to basically every other fucking thing we watch, <laughs> where it's like, uh, should we talk about Harry Kim for ten? No, probably not. <laughs> was, Tom Paris isn't Harrison even in this episode. Yeah, what's going on? Let's talk about the altruism of the Neelix and Cass relationship for forty-five minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um. It is so strange, 
isn't it? Yeah, we, we do a lot of the stuff, the other podcasts that we do talk about. It's, but it's it's funny because um, it's also I at least feel uh, the way that it's like it's hard to it's hard to bring the Star Trek podcast tone to this show because. Mm. There are funny moments, but there's nothing to like make fun of in the show, really. Right. You know, so yeah. it's like there's there's I can laugh at the jokes of the show, but the show itself does not make stupid decisions that I think are funny and like you can laugh at with them. So it's 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 just been interesting, like a behind the scenes look. Is like it's a very different show to talk about than the Star Treks and the Picards and everything else that we we watch usually. So the um, fi- the fictionalized version of Rick Berman we've created would fit right in on the show, though, which is fun. That's true. Times were different back then, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, let's see. We can go out with a sort of power. So this is episode nine. So we're almost done with the first season. There's only a couple episodes left. Um, did you have any quick character power rankings at this point or bottom bottom three, top three? Mm, I think top I think Al's got to be at the top. Yeah. Um, I put I Farnham like, and Charlie Utter, I think, at the top. Yeah, those are pretty solid. Strangely enough, I feel like Cy is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. he's not. He doesn't have to modulate a lot. You know, it's not a... It's not a yeah. nuanced performance. Really. And he also doesn't really have that much to do, no. frankly. He's not like, interested he's, in doing stuff. Yeah. When they use him, I feel like they use him very effectively, but ultimately... All he's really done for the duration of the time he's been on the show is is just sort of hang out at his saloon and be shitty to people. Well, they have that that great line with um when the town meeting is called and Cy uh, sidles up next to Swearingen and Swearingen talks about how he talked to Claggett earlier in the day and Cy just sort of takes him aside or like turns his head and just uh, he, he sort of gives him like this like bullshit praise about like oh, I'm glad you talked to that guy but if you need any backup next time just like ask me I'll be right there with you and yeah. Al gives him kind of like a raised eyebrow like what the fuck are you talking about uh, right. but that that's yeah. what Cy is Cy is not actually interested in doing anything and so the performance results in him he's not he's not one note but he's not a character who can be put into it He's the opposite of Charlie Utter. You can't put him in the scenes with different characters because he d- yeah. has no um, alternate reactions to people. And he's not really – he doesn't really have any schemes, you know? Like this, yeah, just wants for, money. For a sh- yeah. yeah, for a show that's full of subtext and full of uh, characters who, are, who have cl- very clear distinctions between what they're saying and what they actually want, Yeah, I feel like size pretty straightforward for the yes. most part like he he yeah. doesn't he doesn't really want much outside of i mean he kind of sums it up in this episode right when that speech that he has yep. with i think it's to Joni where he says ultimately at the end of the day we're just selling sex and making money off the of it. the, uh, and, the percentages being what they are we'll make yeah. our we'll make our money yeah yeah i mean he's so i i, I guess you could argue size drive is to not be abandoned as a character like his psychological thing is that he doesn't want anyone to abandon him and he has to control everything but his his plotting itself is not uh the stuff of narrative really it's just make Mm -hmm. money by playing cheaty uh, like cheating at cards and playing loaded dice and stuff like that yeah i put the doctor pretty high yep i like cochran too his one tear when he's talking to jane that always makes yeah 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 uh i feel (laughs) i feel like if you got brad durif in that character into the into the room with anyone who is 
any sort of like al- alcoholic or drug addict, I feel like he could snap you out of it just by <laughs> just by the how earnest he is about what he's saying to you. Yeah, it's so it, it feels it feels so deeply pulled from inside of him when he's like. I wish that you just stopped <laughs> drinking. Yeah. Yeah. I actually kind of feel feel like Seth is pretty low on the list. Yeah. I would put um I would put Joni at the bottom for me. Yeah. And yeah. then you know me like at this point this is where you start having to cut like all stars really so like Saul mm. is not someone that's particularly vital yet i don't think right yeah i was uh, just thinking that yeah. so it's like you're in a you're in a position like that where there's nothing really wrong with the character but i just haven't seen enough to really want to keep them in and after that i don't know who you know like Eddie Sawyer but i wouldn't even really consider him a major character or anything yeah there's there's a lot of these guys that are just like bench players yeah. that are fine but yeah come in hit a 3 uh, off the bench and then get it, get right. over there yeah <laughs> yeah just come in play some defense <laughs> while the first the first line needs to take a breather <laughs> i i did really love um when when al comes over to tell them about the meeting on his way out he stops and he's like you guys did a really nice job here <laughs> I like the the other one in the uh, the Bella Union. He steals their coffee and then doesn't like it when he leaves yes. and throws it away. Yeah. <laughs> Too fancy for him. Yeah, they, he's uh, he's bonded with Seth and Saul. I think he even he even insults Saul's uh, Judaism, and they just laugh about it by the end of yes. the, after centuries of inbreeding has allowed you to see the the right and wrong of things or whatever he says. All right, that's it. No other sons or daughters. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the show today. The next episode is Mr. Wu. If you enjoyed the content today, you can go to patreon.com slash the Penske file and support us there. Extra bucks gives you extra content at patreon.com slash the Penske file. Clay, do you have anything you want to say before we close out this episode of something pretty? Uh, if you want it also on Patreon, you can follow Amanda and me from the Rotten Horror Picture Show as we cover... Video Nasties, the nastiest horror movies of the 1980s. On uh, We're doing 12 of them, one a month. January was Possession. Dario Argento's Tenebrae. Oh. February was Possession. Mm-hmm. Uh, March is Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, as it's sometimes known. It's also known as Flesh for Frankenstein. <laughs> and uh, that one's going to be fun because I actually, it's not available to stream anywhere. Yeah. But the company Vinegar Syndrome put out a Blu-ray of it, like a 4K Blu-ray set that comes with, apparently that movie was released in 3D. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be watching it in 3D. Good. And it's 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 pretty fun. It's It has the, nor- the more modern 3D, but it also has a blue and red version of the 3D, and it comes with blue and red 3D glasses. I watched... Maybe five minutes in blue and red, and I, I almost had a, an aneurysm. So I don't yeah. think we're going to watch the whole movie like that. <laughs> but the other more modern version, we're going we're gonna to watch it that way in 3D. Cool. Sounds good. Patreon.com slash The Penske File. So before this episode of Something Pretty Ends, I thought I wanted to just mention the, the one last joke that makes me laugh, which is that during the town meeting when Tom Nuttall comes in, he's like, he's like, Al, weren't you going to invite me? And he's like, yeah, you can sit down he's don't kill me by a thousand paper cuts don't subject me to water <laughs> torture he says take a seat tom and throw or whatever fucking book you've been reading onto the yellow peril <laughs> very good he's clearly been uh prepping his quotes that he wants to bring into things <laughs> throw out whatever book you've been reading 
Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back with Mr. Wu in the next episode. See ya. If I'm excluded, say so, Al. Don't leave me to die the death of a thousand cuts. Well, sit down, Tom. Don't subject me to death by water torture. Take a seat, Tom, and toss whatever book you've been reading on the fucking yellow peril, huh?